Good morning, church. It's so good to be together. I don't know if they can see me online. I feel like the angle is behind me. Someone probably should check that. But uh, otherwise, it might be a weird, weird thing for those of you at home. But if you're at home, we're glad you're here. If you're here, we're glad you're here. Such a gift to be together, uh, to worship as a church. We are continuing our series today in Esther. So if you want to turn your Bibles, in your Bibles, to Esther chapter 2, I do want to pre-warn you that this is about the bottom four most awkward sermons that you could pump through a sound system, open air at a park. Uh, But, you know, it's where we are. So uh, I'm actually stoked for it. I'm going to jump straight into the text and then we'll start discussing. This is Esther chapter 2, starting in the first verse we read this. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young women who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. Now this pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away when Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put into the custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of the food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and the young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day, Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period for their beautifying, six months with oil and myrrh, and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young women went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. And in the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem, the custody of Shashgaz, the king's unit who was in charge of the she would not go to the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the term came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had, been taken, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now, Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the twelfth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. 
and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. And he also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. And this, beloved, is the word of the Lord for us today. Pray with me. Father, we ask today as we spend a few minutes in your word and in this story, um, talking through and, and digging through some ideas that, if we're honest, are just just foreign and untasteful to us. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be our interpreter, that you would be our teacher and our discipler, and that you would make your will known to us, that we would leave this space having spent our morning with you. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So, this text really kind of, we really just kind of covered the most famous part of the Esther story, right? Like, like you most likely, if you've spent any time around church, heard this part of the story. Like, young Jewish girl who's an orphan wins a beauty contest and becomes queen. Like, that's kind of the, the Sunday school VBS Veggie Tales version of this story that is immortalized for church brats uh, around the world. I don't know, I don't know what it is about us as kind of like modern Western evangelicals, but we have this, 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 I don't know, just this thing where we take a lot, especially a lot of these Old Testament stories, and we really, really kind of sanitize them for our kids. And they end up kind of just wormed into our subconscious as this vaguely Disney-esque morality tale, right? And that's just kind of where they usually end up hanging out. And I want to encourage you guys today as we pipe this across the park for everyone here. I want to encourage you guys today to, to address this story with fresh eyes. And the reason is this. What we'll see as we talk about this is that this story is, not, is so far from being a romantic Disney fairy tale. This story is actually pretty dark. And there's actually a lot of stuff in here that's really troubling and really hard to engage for us really distasteful, and, and if I'm being blunt, probably triggering for some of us with our own stories. I want to encourage you guys to, to do the little bit of uncomfortable work to let yourself experience this story kind of afresh, and kind of maybe let, let your Veggie Tales bubble of Esther be popped a little bit today, because what I think we'll see is that the power in this text really comes out and really is shown, the gospel is really most displayed in how dark this story actually is. And so I'd encourage you guys to just, just kind of be in that with me for a few minutes. So the first thing you need to remember as we read this, right, is that we're reading a story about the ancient Near East. This is the Persian Empire. These are not modern Westerners with modern Western sensibilities. This means the fundamental worldview and culture of this story is so different from ours that it makes it hard to even understand the story itself. And that's before we even get to like theologizing and applying this to our life here and now. Like it's just, it's just a really different world that we're poking our heads into. And beyond that, right, like we're reading this as a story. And what you'll find as you dig into Esther is that the way the story is told, it pretty much just describes events. 
There's very little moral or ethical commentary given in this story. And that's hard for us. It's hard for us, I think, in part because we kind of want to take, like, Mordecai and Esther and kind of just, like, morph them into this mold of just, like, these super spiritual people who are kind of like Jesus so we can just be like Mordecai or be like Esther. But the reality is... There's a lot of different stuff going on in this story. Some of it is righteous and a lot of it is sinful and all the different characters are doing it because even the bad guys and even the good guys, even Mordecai and Esther are just people doing their best and they do some righteous things and some sinful things and the book doesn't tell you what's what. There's essentially one moral statement in this entire book and it's calling genocide evil. It's kind of the low hanging fruit of moral statements, right? Like most of what gets described in this book is really just described. And so I wanna encourage you guys because that means a couple things for us. Knowing that this is a different time and place, a different culture with different sensibilities than us, and knowing that the story isn't terribly concerned with speaking into the morality of most of what's going on, it makes some of our reading of Esther just kind of hard. Because what we'll see is, we'll see these characters who we love and we feel like we're supposed to relate to doing things and engaging in things that we go, I don't think that's right. <laughs> I think someone should have spoken up there. That seems really bad. And, and I just want to encourage you guys to remember that, that we have to let this story speak for what it is and speak for the time that it is. You know, we can make some pretty objective moral judgments about some of the stuff described in this story. And we'll do that today. But it would be unfair to expect that of the characters who are drenched in this world and are blind to some of this stuff. In the same way that we have easy eyes to call out like the evils of a Persian harem, right? Our future generations are gonna see all sorts of stuff that are blind spots to us in our culture and be able to easily call it out. And so I'd encourage you guys like let's Let's take this story in for what it is. Let's, let's hear some of the parts that are hard and painful. Let's stand on the truth of biblical morality, but let's also not, not hold the characters in this story to an unrealistic expectation. That kind of makes sense? Cool. So here's the story. Esther 2 picks up about three years after the events of Esther 1, and things have not gone well for poor King Xerxes. If you remember, the story opens with him having this massive six-month rager of a party where he basically helps his whole kingdom see how awesome and amazing he is. Well, part of what he did at that party was get all his generals and political leaders together and plan out the second Persian invasion of Greece. Uh, you, can, you can connect this to world history and read about the Greco-Persian Wars. King Xerxes led the second Persian invasion of Greece, and it just went really, really badly for him. Um, this is what is partially what is described in the movie 300, right? Like this is that era of time. And essentially what happened for Xerxes was he amassed the largest recorded army in the ancient world and went and just blasted Greece. And he actually conquered it. He burned Athens to the ground. He destroyed a whole bunch of, you know, ancient parts and wonders of the world and all these things. But the casualties Persia experienced were ludicrous. In some of the battles, they literally have numbers of 100 to 1 Persian deaths to Greek deaths. And so even though he essentially conquered Greece, 
By the time he actually retreated and tried to establish and hold the land he conquered, his troops were so decimated that the Greeks instantly took back all of the land they lost. And they didn't just take it back, they chased after the Persians and met them mid-oceanic voyage and had an epic naval battle and destroyed upwards of 80% of the Persian Navy. So Xerxes has come back to Susa uh, in a pretty bad way. He has failed utterly as a leader. And most people say that that defeat essentially sparks a downward spiral that lasts until his death uh, a few short years after the events of the Book of Esther. Um, remember we talked about how Esther from the perspective of this kind of honor and shame culture, right? Like he is very shamed right now. He has lost a lot of credibility. He has lost a lot of everything. He's not doing well. And in that context, he, he misses his queen, right? Like he's depressed and lonely and doesn't have anyone to share it with him. And so his boys come around him and say, hey, bro, how about I know it'll, I know you're, you're not doing great, Xerxes. I know it'll cheer you up. Let's refresh the harem. Let's get some ladies in here. That'll help out, which it, we're going to talk about that in a minute. But it's really just like, it's just kind of messed up even by Persian standards. You see, Xerxes was actually legally required to take a queen from amongst uh, the, the children of his nobles, the, the kind of seven houses of Persia. But he doesn't. He takes a queen from amongst the common folk. And the reason this is really simple, basically all of his people right now hate him. And so there's a really good chance that if he took a queen from amongst his nobles, it would just turn into an assassination plot which, by the way, it eventually did. Later on in his life, he did marry one of the daughters of his nobles who held a grudge, and they used the marriage to set up an assassination where the wife killed him in his sleep. So he's actually being a, a little bit wise here where he goes, I probably better not hang out with those people right now. And they come up with this plan to essentially go throughout the entire country and take all the beautiful young virgins and bring them into his harem for him to pick a new queen. Now we gotta stop here for a minute and talk about this piece. This is... Setting aside kind of like the difference between like the honor-shame culture and how we understand, this is probably the biggest piece in the whole book of Esther that just really puts this in a totally different world and different understanding from us. And so I'm going to describe to you guys a little bit of how the Persian harem works. If you remember the, the whole honor-shame piece, part of how that works out is that the king is the best of the best of the best. He's the strongest, he's the smartest, he's the most powerful, he's the most good-looking, and of course, he's supposed to be the sexiest, I guess? And so he gets access to the most amount of wives and women and all of those things. In this world, the, the women, especially of the noble people, are literally property, literally property. He gets to bring women into his harem and he owns them. And that works out in the three houses of the Persian king's harem. There is the house of the virgins, which is the one we kind of see at the beginning of this story, where young, beautiful women are brought in and basically just said, you don't get to marry, you don't get to have a family, you belong to the king, he does what he wants with you. Which for most of those young women meant they would stay a virgin the rest of their life and they would be a singer or a dancer or a servant in his temple. But if the king gets the hots for you and decides to, you know, indulge, well, you're no longer one of the virgins. Now you go to the second house of the harem, which is the house of the concubines, which is where the king keeps his sex slaves. And you would live in that house literally for the rest of your life unless the king calls upon you by name. This is one of the pieces 
that I actually think we really need to wrap our head around just kind of the horror of this setup is that once a woman entered the second house of the harem, the house of the concubines, she literally never left those walls ever again unless the king asked for her by name. Keep, bear in mind, this king has hundreds of concubines and spends years at a time away from the city of Susa. So most of these young women have a one-night stand with the king and then just live the rest of their life without leaving a house. Now, they get pampered and they have a really nice life and all those things, but it doesn't justify the evil of what we're talking about, right? This is, this is something that we can very firmly stand on the other side and say, yeah, that's, that's reprehensible. That's not how you treat human beings made in the image of God. And from the house of the concubines, he would select wives. And he might have three, four, ten different wives who get to leave the second house of the harem and go to the third house of the harem, which is essentially a complex built onto the side of the palace where they would be given their own home and their own staff of servants and all those things. And from the list of the wives, he got to pick one to be his queen. Now keep in mind, again, right, like the queen just lives in a house in the harem. Like she only sees the king when he wants to see her. But instead of being in a house with all the other concubines, she gets her own house and her own servants and all those things. And that's, that's the system we have here. I, I, think it's, I think it's just, it's important for us to note a couple things about this. This is normal in this day. And when I say normal, by the way, like Israel did this. Solomon did this. The, the kings of Israel, this was the normative cultural practice of royal polygamy in this day, in this world. That doesn't in any way make it okay. We can say very firmly, right, that that's an evil system that dehumanizes people. But we have to understand that system to understand the story. It's really easy to read this story and think about and kind of meditate on how just awful of a system that is and wonder why God's people aren't speaking out against it. But there's just no, there's just no context for that. They would have no idea what to speak out about it. That's the way the world works. That's the way the kings practiced polygamy in that day. They didn't have context for anything else. So, so I say that to say, right, like we can stand as the audience in this weird place where we acknowledge the evils of that, but we also understand some of why the characters react the way they react. Does that make sense? So at this point in the story, we're introduced to our two main characters. We get introduced to Mordecai and Esther. And really quick, I just want to tell you guys this. I know you won't do it because you're Red Tree, but it's fine. I want to tell you anyway. When Jewish folk read this story out loud every year at Purim, there's a tradition where every time you say the word Mordecai, everyone cheers, and every time you say the word the name Haman, everyone hisses. So you're welcome to do that. We'll be in Esther for a couple months. If you want to just like give a woo-woo every time you hear the name Mordecai, dang it. I was hoping maybe. I was hoping maybe. You can at least try the hiss next week when we get to Haman, because that part's more fun, right? Just a hiss when you hear when you hear the bad guy's name. That's kind of great. <laughs> anyway. We're introduced to Mordecai and Esther. Yes, there we go. See, one person did it. We're introduced to Mordecai and Esther, the main characters of the story. And we learn a couple things about them really quickly. The first thing we learn is that these are post-exile Jewish family. This gets a little bit deeper into the weeds, but we actually know that Mordecai is of the line of Saul, uh, which 
adopted daughter are living in Susa, and for whatever reason, they have chosen to remain in Persia instead of return back to Jerusalem. This kind of speaks back to that larger theological question Esther is speaking into, right? But you have Mordecai and Esther, and the book is really clear to let us know that he has adopted his young cousin as his daughter. Now, really quick, this is not the main point of the text, but I just feel like we would be remiss if we didn't mention this, because the text goes out of its way twice to remind you that Mordecai adopted Esther and loves her as his daughter and loves her well. We'll actually see that throughout the course of the story, that even as her life changes dramatically, he never stops caring for her and connecting with her and reaching out to her because he's her dad and she's his daughter and he loves her. And that speaks to this larger biblical teaching about adoption. It's just that God loves orphans and God loves to care for the parentless. And then we see that spoken out and worked out even in this text. In a young refugee girl whose parents died and her cousin adopted her and took her as his daughter and cared for her as such. Just a, a beautiful picture of some of the biblical teaching about caring for the least. Which, by the way, that'll play into some of the larger talking about the providence of this story. So, so kind of keep that in your back pocket. But we're introduced to this family. And we learn a couple things about them. We know that Esther was an orphan who was adopted. We know that Mordecai cares for her as his daughter, that he loves her. We also know, and this part is interesting for us, that for whatever reason, this family are not publicly living into their Jewish identity. They are taking names that are Babylonianized versions, or not even versions, they're just Babylonianized names. We're not told Mordecai's Hebrew name, but we know that Mordecai is not a Hebrew name. It means worshiper of Marduk, uh, which if you know anything about Old Testament culture, he's one of the gods of the Babylonians who God is, the true God, is pretty passionate about his dislike of Marduk. To pick a name like Mordecai would be about as opposite of a Jewish name as you could possibly pick. Hadassah, which means Myrtle Branch, is renamed Esther, which connects to this Babylonian goddess Ishtar, but also means star, and Myrtle's have a little star-shaped flower, and so there's a connection there. We don't know we don't know why Mordecai has chosen for his family to live not publicly in their faith. And I think that's interesting. There's a million reasons that it could be valid. We'll see in the main thrust of this story that it was pretty common for the Jewish people to be mistreated in the exile. And so he might have had a lot of motivations to keep their faith or their heritage private. But we know and we can see pretty easily that whatever expression of Jewish identity and faith this family has, it is private and not public. And again, the text doesn't speak to the morality of that. We don't know, we simply don't know the motivations that go into this. But we know that this is what they chose to do. In the midst of that, Esther gets chosen amongst this group of girls who get taken into the harem. And they go through their year of beauty treatments, which is super weird to think about. And actually, if you look up the archaeology of it, it gets even weirder because they would do this thing where they like, had the women put on this like tent that like spread out and they'd have to stand and kind of crouch over an incense burner so that the smoke got all over them. It's really weird. But they did that for like a year. And when they finally thought, all right, I guess these ladies are smoky enough, 
They've been, been on the smoker for a year. They're good to go for the king. They send them in. And, and I don't, I don't want to be crass here, but there's no way to talk about this story without this just, just being what it is. These, these young virgins who've been taken from their home are sent in for a night to sexually pleasure the king. And he gets to pick who he likes best and make her queen. And that's just what it is. And Esther wins favor with her keepers and wins favor with the king and performs well enough that she is chosen and he crowns her queen and holds a big old feast in her honor and gives everyone a break from taxes for a couple of weeks, which by the way, is just, it's just the political move that's like as old as time, right? Like, I know I just really royally screwed up our country, but hey, how about you guys just don't pay taxes for a couple of weeks? We'll have a big party, look at my new wife, forget about the whole Greek thing, like everything's good. And apparently it works for him for a couple of years because they don't kill him until like a decade later. But anyway, he, he holds this feast. And I don't think I mentioned this last week, by the way, but Esther is, as a book is actually divided up with feasts. If you remember like as a kid, like those books on tape, like the chime to turn the page, the feast in Esther is the note for you to know we're moving from one topic to the next. It's kind of how they transition the scenes in the book is with these different feasts. So our section of the, of the text culminates in a feast to celebrate Esther as the new queen. And that's basically the story. I lost my place, sorry. Oh, here we go. The, the big thing that I want us to catch here that I think is easiest to miss in this text, because the story in and of itself is, is a little shocking, a little distasteful, but it's pretty easy to follow. The big thing I want us to actually catch has to do with how Esther's experience of this story is portrayed. And this is the part that it's really easy for us to miss in English. You might have caught this, but what, you, what you'll notice is all of Esther's interactions in Esther chapter 2 are presented in a passive tense. And if you read, if you read this in Hebrew, it would be a little more obvious. I didn't read it in Hebrew because I can't, but the commentator said if you read it in Hebrew, it'd be more obvious. I don't, I don't know. But the whole point is the way this is written, it lets us know bluntly that Esther doesn't make any actual decisions in this text. Everything that happens, happens to Esther. She is an exile. She is orphaned. She is adopted. She's taken into the harem. She's, someone else finds favor in her. She she goes to the king, and he finds favor with her, and then she receives the crown and becomes the queen. Everything that happens in this story happens to Esther. Now, this is, like, I don't, I don't want to overplay this, but this is really important for us understanding this text. Because the reality is, this text is pretty terrible. I mean, Esther's, Esther's experience of life it's just not how we would, like, it's not ideal, right? And, and by the way, like, none of this means that she necessarily hated this. Like, there's a, there's a good chance she would have been honored to be chosen to take it into the harem and do all those things. Because she got to be rich and all this different jazz. None of that makes it, like, okay or good. This lady's life is essentially happening to her. And she goes through some really tragic stuff. Her, her parents die. She's in a 
foreign land. She's not living into her identity. She's taken away from her family and put into a harem where she has no idea if she's going to be the queen of the, of the world or if she's going to be the one locked in a house for the rest of her life, right? Like, all this stuff happens, and Esther is essentially just swept along. And, and the way this story presents Esther is we just see this young lady who is at the mercy of a, of a system, of a series of events that are bigger than her and more powerful than her and don't care about her. She's just being swept along in this experience. And guys, that is the perfect picture of the Jewish experience post-exile. See, Israel is gone. Jerusalem is destroyed. Even the group of Jews at this point who are back in Jerusalem rebuilding the temple and reinitiating worship are only there because some pagan king let them go. They, they, have, they have lost power, authority, freedom, liberty, and they are just being swept along the tides of history, and it all just seems pretty terrible. Even when good things happen, they're, they're happening to them through these sinful and pagan avenues. The Jewish identity at this point really is just kind of caught up in this helplessness, that the, that the world is just happening. And, and by the way, like, this brings us to the larger teaching of Esther, the theological point of this, right? Like, the whole point of the whole book is this idea that God is sovereign, and he's working behind the scenes, and he's protecting his people. And you can even see that in Esther, right? Like, you see the series of coincidences over and over. Esther just happens to be orphaned. She just happens to be adopted by a man who loves her and cares for her. She just happens to be taken up in the collection of women, happens to gain favor, happens to win, happens to become the queen, all these different things. And you're able to step back as the audience and go, well, of course, like this is God's providence. This is his sovereign hand of working to advance his kingdom and protect his people, just like he's doing throughout the whole book. But if we actually acknowledge that theological truth, it should leave us with a really uncomfortable question. Because somehow in this text, God's sovereign providence to protect his people and advance his kingdom comes about in a scene where a young Jewish girl in her teens is sitting in the bedroom of an evil pagan king expected to sexually service him. And that's awful. And I'm sorry, like, saying something like that crass, like if that's triggering for you, but I think, I think we need to sit in that truth. Because that's a, that's a terrible scene. And it would be really easy to sit back and go, where the heck is God in that? Where, how could he possibly be present in that? But that's, that's the question. Can God possibly be in that bedroom with that little Jewish teenager in the midst of just being swept along of these events bigger than her and more powerful than her and totally apathetic to her? Yes. Yes, he can. Yes, he is. 
Esther's wants were just not even involved in this story. Her desires, her person, just weren't even a factor. She's just experiencing this. And yet, even in that, even in something which we can easily, objectively say, that's evil, it should not be that way. We can see that God is sovereign. And he is present. And he works even in the midst of darkness and evil to advance his kingdom and to love and care for his people. I know, like, that's, that's weird to say that, but guys, we have to sit in that truth. This is the power of Jesus. His sovereignty extends even to the depths of sin and the depths of the curse. People were bent by sin and people do horrible things. They dehumanize and abuse each other. And beyond individuals, the whole system of this world is bent toward evil. Oftentimes it feels like the brokenness and sin of this world is what's in control. That we're simply being carried along. I mean, our cultures, our stories are different than Esther's, right? I don't think anyone in this space has been conscripted into a harem at any point in our life. But I'm willing to bet that all of us have experienced a time when the world just seems so big and so evil and so indifferent to you. That you were just being swept along. Maybe it was an unexpected illness or a tragedy or a death or the loss of a job or larger systemic things in our world and our culture. I'm sure many of us, if we're willing to admit it, have felt at one time or another that we are simply being carried along and things are outside of our control. I'm sure some of us feel that way right now. The love of Jesus. Let me assure you of something. That regardless of your circumstances, regardless of the suffering, of the hurt, of the doubt, whatever it is, our God reigns. You may feel powerless and fearful. You may be suffering at the hands of this cursed world, but our God reigns. Beloved, this is the truth of the gospel. Your God is for you, and he is in control. Jesus lived a perfect life and died an unjust death and rose in the power of the Spirit and ascended into heaven and sits on his throne. This is the power of the gospel. He is in control. He's already defeated the things that seem like they can just carry us along. You can believe that. You can trust that. You can experience that here and now, even in the face of suffering and uncertainty, even when it feels like you're out of control, especially when it feels like you're out of control. One of my favorite passages of all the scripture is Psalm 23. If you know this, quote it with me. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, 
I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Guys, sometimes it feels like we are being carried along. And it feels like evil and the curse just have control. And it's scary and it's hard. But praise be to God that he is in control. That we never have to fear. That we never have to shy away from our suffering or from the hurts and injustice we feel. We never have to feel like the world is just happening to us because, beloved, he is with us. No matter what. Even when we can't see him. Even when evil and suffering abound, he is with us. He is our shepherd, and he is able to use even the evil of this world for his kingdom. When you feel like you are not in control, and you are being carried along with this world, you can remember this. You are not in control. But he is. He is good. I'll end with with one of a text from Philippians. When Paul is in prison suffering, he writes to this church to congratulate them, and he talks about his times of suffering and his times of blessing. And he says, guys, I know both sides of it. I know what it is to have a ton and to have nothing. And I'm just telling you that I can be content because I have Christ. Because he is in me. And with him, I can do anything. I can endure anything. I can experience anything because he is with me. Beloved, this is the truth of the gospel for us today. I'm going to pray for us and we're going to sing a song and end out our time with communion. I want to encourage you guys to take a minute and be in this song and be honest with God in your prayers. Come to him with the realities of your fears and your concerns and the the ways we seek to control our world and the ways we feel like we're out of control. Bring that to Jesus this morning. See what he says to you. See how he comforts you. And then we'll end out our time. Jesus, you are so good. You're so good to us. God, give us eyes to see and trust that you are near and you are present. Even when we don't see you. Even when we don't feel you. Even when we feel the opposite. That the curse is winning. Give us faith to trust and believe you are with us, even in the valley of the shadow of death. We love you, Jesus. I pray this in your name. Amen.